All right. So, round about the year 1000, there's a story about a king named Canute. And King Canute, uh, legend has it that in an attempt to prove to his courtiers that he was simply a man and not a god, which was very characteristic of English kings at the time, um, he, he placed his throne on the edge of the sea and he ordered the sea to go no further than, than, the, than his feet so that his robes would not get wet. Uh, and as the tide rose, uh, it rose past his throne anyway, and he turned to his courtiers and he said, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. For there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. Again, that probably didn't happen. Um, and even if it did, it was probably the thing where Canute was shamed and nobody ever saw him again because he kind of got dunked on. Um, but again, how many kings do you know show any sort of humility like that? Like when you read through history, I know, I know some of y'all have read, uh, have read Beowulf recently. And, uh, and this reminds me of like, of in Beowulf, how Beowulf would like do something and then he'd say, I'm the greatest warrior ever. Let's all go get drunk on mead and everybody must bow down to me. And also let us give thanks to our mighty and gracious God who, uh, through his kindness has bestowed his, didn't happen. That's not how it worked. Um, and then I remember, I remember another time, uh, this is like 15 years ago. I went on a mission trip to help do some cleanup in Nashville after the floods. I think that was around 2010. Some of you probably can correct me on that, but, um, and the first day we got there, we were kind of walking around doing touristy Nashville stuff. And we went into the gift shop at the Bridgestone arena. And I'll never forget this because the lady at the cash register talked to me for probably 20 minutes about how the Chinese caused the floods, that they had technology that could control the weather and they were doing things they shouldn't be doing. And this was all their fault. And I bought something and left as quickly as I could because it was weird. But this idea of being able to control the weather is kind of fascinating for us. One of my favorite scenes in the whole Marvel universe is in Thor Ragnarok, where Thor's been stripped of his hammer and he's lost his eye and his sister Hela is mocking him. And she says, remind me, brother, what were you the god of again? And his, and like his, eye, his one good eye starts to like shoot lightning and lightning comes out of his fingertips and then Led Zeppelin's immigrant song starts playing and they just, they just destroy everybody, right? It's awesome. But why is this such a big deal? And I think it's in part because we know deep down inside of us that only someone or something truly supernatural can control the weather. Think about all of the things that we've been able to do in human history. We've, we've domesticated all kinds of animals. We've invented cars. We have... Uh, what, what my parents would have had to have had like a room this size to fit a computer in now fits in this a million times more powerful. Think about all the things that we've been able to do. And the one thing that we can't do, no matter how hard we try is control the weather. So the best, the best shot you have against a storm is just secure your stuff and hope for the best. That's it. And then we get this story that we just read tonight about Jesus and the disciples caught in a storm. And we're looking tonight at this story with the three questions that are guiding our study for the whole semester. Who is Jesus? What is he like? And why is he worth following? Because I think these things jump out at us if we, if we pay attention. 
But there's one thing I want to point out that doesn't really fit in the actual message of the story here. And I think this is so fascinating because when we talk about the Gospels, we talk about these accounts of Jesus's life. You hear a lot of things about how we got them and how certain things uh, were added later or this probably never happened. And um, there's a there's a New Testament scholar named Richard Baucom, and he wrote this incredible book that I've read most of, part of. Um, but he wrote this book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And basically, he's taking the Gospel of Mark as a case study to show how everything that gets written in the Gospel of Mark is consistent with what would have been an eyewitness testimony, that these are things that people actually saw. And one of the things he points out, if you go back and think about uh, the story that Jay just read for us, there is a lot of seemingly irrelevant detail in this story. And what Balkum argues, and I think what's so, so powerful for us, is that when you hear a story like this that has all these seemingly irrelevant details, that actually lends more credibility to the story. Think about the stories that you tell with your friends. How many irrelevant details to whatever it was that happened do you remember? You remember what you're wearing, where you were. Uh, I mean, if you've ever heard my Phil the Vampire story, um, which some of you have, and if you haven't, that's my pitch. Go to Suko. You'll hear it there. Um, there are so many details about that story beyond just, I worked at a restaurant with a guy named Phil who was a vampire. Uh, there's so many random details about that story that I remember. So keep that in mind as we think about this, that, that there are details in this story that nobody had to write down, nobody had to record, and yet, because it's eyewitness testimony, they did. So that's just a little, little, little bonus thing for you. Just put that in your pocket and think about it later. I don't know. Question one, who is Jesus? And Jesus answers this question emphatically, that Jesus is the Lord of the storm. See, we know where this event occurred. It happened on the Sea of Galilee. And we know that based on the geography of the area, the Sea of Galilee was prone to storms like this uh, because of the way the weather worked and where it sat between the mountains and things like that. It was very common for storms like this to arise out of nowhere. You'd be sailing along, big storm, and it would you know, go away. But we also know that several of Jesus' disciples were seasoned fishermen and that they had grown up and spent their entire lives fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And so they knew about these weather patterns. They knew about these kinds of things. And for them to think this storm was bad is significant. That they would look up and say, teacher, we're perishing. This would not have been an uncommon experience. So this is a, a bad storm. They, they knew that. But what is Jesus doing by silencing the storm? And this goes back to what we talked about in the first week about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That Jesus is establishing himself as the Lord of creation. Jesus is establishing himself as God. If you go back to Psalm 107... The psalmist is describing the great things that God does and has done and will continue to do. And the psalmist says this of God. He says, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. So anybody that hears this story, any of these disciples that would have been in the boat and seen this, they would have, they would have known what this meant. 
Remember, the Psalms were like their version of their worship playlist on Spotify because we don't do hymnals anymore. Um, These were the songs that they sang when they went to the temple to worship. They would have sung this song about God doing this work. And here they are in the boat with Jesus silencing the storm. Anybody familiar with that story would have immediately made that connection. But I think it is, I, maybe I'm wired to see things this way, but I can't help but think that this story is kind of funny. Uh, because Jesus is asleep in the boat. He's just asleep. He's just asleep in the boat. And there's a storm. And he's just sleeping through it. And the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, like things are going crazy here. Uh, there's water coming in the boat. And uh, there's all this chaos. And... Uh, we were hoping that you might wake up. (laughs) And then Jesus gets up. And I kind of imagine him like getting up and kind of like looking around like, you know, that feeling you have when you first wake up. And he just kind of looks at the storm and and the Bible says that he rebukes the wind. Uh, And he says to the sea, peace be still. Like rebuking is what I have to do to my children when they are being my children, right? And it never works. Like, I, it's, it's never like, Ford, stop. And he stops. He's, you know, they, they, they're very much in the argument mode right now. But again, this is so funny to me because here's Jesus, a heavy nap, waking up, rubbing his eyes and shouting at the wind to stop. And then the wind actually does it, which is insane. And then, and then because again, I think this story is funny. He turns around to his disciples like, why are you afraid? Like, what could possibly be scary in this moment? I don't know, like the storm stopped. Like it's pretty obvious what's scary here, right? But that's exactly what happened. And I love the imagery of the wind and the sea obeying Jesus. Uh, There's a great um, commentator, writer, I don't pastor, I don't know what he was, uh, but a guy named J.C. Ryle. um, He's talking about this, this, this event where what's happening is that the wind and the sea are hearing the voice of their master and obeying. They are hearing the voice that spoke them into existence at creation, maybe for the first time since creation. They're hearing the voice and obeying. And I see this, I see something like this all the time with my dogs. If you know my dogs, uh, our older dog's named Bo. And Bo is, uh, Bo's a sweetheart, he's perfect. He's never done anything wrong. Um, But Bo does not listen to anybody. Until he hears my voice. And when he hears my voice, he comes and he sits right next to me and he doesn't move. I don't know why that is, but that's how it works. And Ryle says that those words were the words of him who first created all things. The elements knew the voice of their master and like obedient servants were quiet at once. And I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't get up and like roll his sleeves up and wave his arms around and start to recite some crazy incantation. He doesn't, he doesn't say in the name of God, the father storm, I command you to stop. No, he just says, stop. And it stops. So who is Jesus? He's the Lord of the storm. Yes, but he is the very voice of creation. There's no mistaking who this is or what's going on, that this is God, God the Son from eternity, exercising his authority over his own creation. Don't miss that. But what is is Jesus like? 
And I think it's so important that Jesus is in the boat. See, the disciples don't have to shout out to someone on the shore. Uh, They don't have to pray to somebody they can't see or don't know is there. No, they just walk over. They're like, hey, dude, wake up. Like, there's crazy stuff happening. Please wake up. And I think about this game, uh, this game that I play with my boys all the time, where I pretend like I'm asleep and they will like jump on me and hit me and yell at me. But the only, the only thing that will wake me up is for them to go ding dong and then I wake up and then I like go back and they do and we, we go through it over and over again. And, and I, I love that because for one, it's, it's funny, but it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm with them. I'm close to them. They're, they're, they're climbing on me and they're, they're jumping on me and attacking me and it hurts, but it's like, it's, 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 it's a, it's a moment of, of connection and intimacy and closeness with my boys that I wouldn't trade for anything. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is right there in the boat with them. They probably had just eaten a meal together. They had, before Jesus fell asleep in the boat, they had told stories and joked and laughed And it's really important for us to remember that because there's this idea out there that if somehow we're doing what we're supposed to do, that we won't get caught up in the storms of life. That if we're following the will of God, we will not find ourselves in the storm. Obey and be blessed as I heard somewhere recently. But look, the disciples are doing exactly what Jesus said with Jesus physically present. Like for one, Jesus can't be out of his own will. And for two, like he's physically there. Like Jesus is in the storm with them. So it doesn't mean that because you're caught up in a difficult season of life that you're somehow out of God's will. It might mean that he has you exactly where he wants you. In fact, it typically does. But it's so vital for us to see this because it shows that Jesus, the Lord of the storm, Jesus, the son of God, now incarnate in the flesh, is in the line of danger with his own people. This is so important because we get told all the time that God will never give you more than you can bear. But we all know that's not true. We deal with stuff every day that we know that we can't bear. But what we do see is that God will never give you more than he hasn't already taken on himself. This is the promise that we have. See, John 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 4 tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us because he's been in our place. That Jesus knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to face the storms of life because he's been through them. And so why is Jesus worth following? And when you study, or you start to look at how the Israelites viewed the sea specifically, it was a place of chaos. It was a place of the unknown. It was a place that only the gods could truly control. And so for Jesus to exercise this authority over the literal sea, there is physical truth that's happening there. Yes, Jesus is the Lord of creation. But what it's telling us is actually something deeper than that. That he's actually sovereign over everything. And the places in your life that you desperately want to escape, the places in your life that feel out of control, the places in your life that feel like chaos, but he's in control of those things too. And I don't know where each one of you is with this, 
Um, I know where some of you are with this, but I don't know where everybody here is with this kind of stuff, but you're dealing with that somewhere. There's something in your life that feels chaotic and out of control and hopeless. And it feels like if somebody doesn't come and get you out of this, then you're going to die. And you're doing something to try to figure out how to escape it. How do I get out of this storm? How do I move on from this? Maybe, maybe you feel the pull to, to being a perfectionist because, the, because you feel like the next time that a father figure comes into your life, he'll stick around because this time you didn't screw it up and you were good enough. And maybe the chaos of your broken family will finally quiet down a little bit. Maybe you can't stop having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend because even though you know it's wrong, it gives you a break from the chaos of the loneliness and maybe it possibly gives you a little bit of permanence in the chaos of everything else being unsettled and falling apart. Maybe you can't stop looking at pornography because it calms the anxiety of the chaos that constant rejection has created in you. Maybe you can't stop drinking or getting high because the chaos that the fear of being known for who you truly are and not the fun party version of you, uh, is, is, that's the chaos. That's the overwhelming thing that you can't get past. Maybe you run from campus ministry to campus ministry and Bible study to Bible study because you, you feel deep down, I sort of think God's gracious, but just in case he's not, let me make sure I've done enough. And that creates a whole different set of chaos. Somewhere in your life, you are beating yourself up. You are running from something. You are trying to punish yourself to the point. You're trying to do something to silence this storm that you can't find a way out of. I don't know where you are, but you're somewhere. Maybe none of these things that I've just said connect to you, but it's, it's there somewhere. Maybe all of these things in some way connect to you. Maybe, maybe things that I have not begun to think about or couldn't possibly comprehend is going on. But I know that every single one of us are in some way or another simply longing for somebody to step into the chaos of our lives and to say, peace, be still. And then to have it happen. But think about the disciples' reaction. Because Mark tells us that they're actually more afraid of Jesus after he silences the storm than they were before. And I think there's something significant here because Jesus is establishing himself as God, sure, but the disciples are wrestling what that actually means for them. That if this guy has the power with his words to silence a storm, what does that mean for me? Because on the one hand, that's really cool. But on the other hand, what if I do or say the wrong thing in his presence? How do I know that that power does not get turned on me? And how do I know that I might not deserve it? Or I might actually deserve it? How do I know the next time that I mess up, the same power that silenced the sea isn't going to turn it and silence me forever? And is it even possible for me to know that? And... Y'all, we, we, we do this thing where uh, we, we really, really try to tame Jesus. We really try to make him um, into something that he's just not. Uh, somewhere around 2001, when I was in high school, which was a long time ago, um, but uh, the, phrase, uh, the phrase, Jesus is my homeboy, uh, came into the kind of constant uh, 
cultural milieu or whatever. Um, and then, and then when Mel Gibson's movie, the passion of the Christ came out, all of a sudden everybody's wearing Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. Uh, you know, so it's got like, it's got like the, the, the buddy Jesus. He's like, yeah, it's like Jesus is my homeboy. It's like, Jesus is cool. And he's, uh, he's like really chill. He's like a fun hang and all this kind of stuff. And, and we've overcommitted to the nearness of Christ. Like, yeah, me and Jesus are cool. It's all fine. He's just one of us. Um, and uh, a couple, a couple of you have kind of gotten my unfiltered thoughts on the "He Gets Us" uh, Super Bowl commercial. Um, and it's not, it's, it's not that it's. I'm not bothered by it because Jesus is washing the feet of people that I don't like. I think there's, I think there's a really important message for all of us to take away from. It's that we're not painting the whole picture. Because the people in scripture that come into contact with Jesus, they leave changed. And there's really only a couple of times where we see Jesus in his full power and his full glory. This is one of them and the transfiguration is the other. And both times it happens, people are terrified. Because there is something about this man that I can't explain and I can't control. That yes, Jesus is near and yes, Jesus is in the boat, but he is not just those things. See, Jesus doesn't just possess the power to silence the storm. He is the power that silences the storm. And so how do I know? It's a really important question. How do I know that he's not going to turn that power back on me when I disappoint him, when I sin against him, when I break his heart? How do I know? And the truth is, we know because there's another storm that Jesus walks directly into. And it's the storm of God's wrath and judgment, which we all stand directly in the path of. And Tim Keller says this in his book, Jesus the King. He says, Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us. The storm of eternal justice of what we owe for our wrongdoing. And that storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept them away. And what Keller's saying here, and I think what is so important for us to take away, is that Jesus is worth following because on the cross, he stood in the line of every ounce of wrath and punishment you and I deserve. And on the cross, at any moment, he could have shouted out, peace, be still, and and the storm would have gone away. And yet he didn't. That he is the only man who ever lived that could say to the storm of God's wrath, And it would have obeyed, and yet he didn't do it. He gave himself up to that storm so that you would never have to. So how do I know that Jesus is not going to turn on me? How do I know that he's not going to direct that anger and that wrath on me? The cross. That's how we know. And... uh, (laughs) I always always laugh when I use this illustration because this was this was my campus minister's like go to and it's sort of a twenty years later a running joke. I, I told some of my friends that I was going to use this, but uh, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, every time I say Aslan's name, I just like fall apart. Um, but in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, Mister and Miss Beaver have been leading the Pevensey children to to meet the mighty Aslan. They've been talking about Aslan over and over again. And, and, then, and then they find out that Aslan is a lion. And Lucy, Lucy asks, is he, is, he, is he quite safe? And Miss Beaver says, safe? 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. And this is the power that Jesus shows us on the cross. He shows us in the boat that he is anything but safe. And yet the grace and the love that he shows, both for his disciples in the boat and for us on the cross, shows us that he's good even beyond the deepest ways that we could possibly imagine. So to wrap it up, following Jesus might lead you into a storm. Following Jesus might mean that your life might not be easy, but it does mean that he's with you. It does mean that in the storms of life, Jesus is right there with you. And so I wonder, have you ever asked the question that the disciples ask in the boat? Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? God, don't you care that my parents are getting divorced? God, don't you care that it's Friday night and I'm home alone in my dorm room by myself again? God, don't you care that I've done everything that I can possibly do and I still can't kick this addiction? God, don't you care that I've never been more exhausted with work and school and life and I still feel like I'm failing at everything? Don't you care? And the beauty of all of this is that on the cross, he answered for us, yes. Yes, I care. More than you can possibly imagine. Because I care so much about those things that I went and did the things that you could never do so that you could have peace with God the Father. And Jesus absolutely has the power to silence the storms in your life, but he also has the goodness and the mercy to be in the boat with you in the middle of them. And the cross is where he shows us that these two things are actually uh, combined together. And he may not silence the storms the way that we want them to, but he submitted to the storm of God's wrath, the storm that he and only he could silence by his own righteousness, and he didn't. And there's nothing else that you will pursue in your life to try to make sense of it that's going to do that. So wrapping it up, who is Jesus? I'm going to come back to these three questions every week. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord of the storm, the actual physical weather pattern storms, but also the Lord of the chaos in your heart. What's he like? He's present. He's kind. He's compassionate. And why is he worth following? Because he's the only one or the only thing who can calm the storms of your life in the ways that you never dared to hope that they could be silenced. If that's at all interesting, consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you give it to us so clearly. Uh, and Lord, you, you give us these really kind of crazy pictures of your work and your mastery over creation. And Lord, I know that many of us here are experiencing chaos and storms and things like that in life. And so, Lord, for those of us here that have, that have placed our trust in you, uh, would you remind us that you're in the boat with us? That you're not standing off um, at, at a distance, keeping us at an arm's length, but you're actually right there with us. That your spirit is with us and at work in us. 
Lord, and would you remind us of this to give us the courage and the strength to turn to you, to turn back to you. Lord, maybe for those of us that have never believed this before and we're trying to find anything that can make sense of things, Lord, would tonight be the night that we would see that you are the Lord of the storm? Maybe we're stuck somewhere in between. Either way, Lord, would you be with us tonight? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.